0: Good morning, everybody. You sleep all right? No? Me either. I love how easy you laugh. That, really, you know, one of the ways you know God is at work in a community of people is when they bear a character trait that is in line with the kingdom of God and out, in, out of line with the host culture. And you are all happy, loving, and you laugh easy. That's not a British thing. So that is, there's no doubt in my mind, that is the spirit of Jesus at work in you. And thank you for the welcome, for the joy, and uh, you make me feel way funnier than I actually am. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. You know, it is a fascinating week to visit with all of you with Brexit tomorrow, right, am I right? Yes, again, just here to divide you. Uh Uh-oh, no woo. I know just enough about the landscape to know that's not okay. But, um, you know, you have Brexit here tomorrow. Back in my country, we have the Trump impeachment trial, not to mention the coronavirus and the harbinger of stock market doom and the Iran missile strike and the trade war with China and you abandon us on 5G and all of the things. (laughs) There is So much, what do you feel right now? Does your chest feel just a little tight right there? Was it Iran or the virus that I got you with? Um, (laughs) But there is so much anxiety in the air. But the anxiety is nothing new. Let me take you back a few years in time to 1997. 1997, a number of key events transpired in your country. It was the year that Princess Diana died. It was the year that a little single-known mom named J.K. Rowling released a book called Harry Potter, Into the Wild, and conservative Christians across the world, or at least in my country, all freaked out. (laughs) It's the year that Oasis fell apart. But 97, you're like, they did? Yes, they did. (laughs) But 97 also marked another much quieter and off the radar event. It was the year of publication for a book called The Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. If you're not familiar with Friedman, he was a Jewish rabbi and therapist who became an early expert, if you know anything about psychology, in family systems theory. And then later in life, he applied all of that data and research on family systems theory, which is the basic idea that relationships function together in a system, which is, again, common knowledge, but odd to us in the West. And then later, he applied that to larger systems, first to the synagogue and the church, then to business, and then eventually to the nation state itself. He became a sought after advisor to the White House and other heads of state. In his prescient book, he applied all of that kind of knowledge base to leadership. I would consider it the most important leadership book I've ever read. Now, it is a bit dense, all right? I'm about to reread it with all of my elders because we're heading into an election year. Uh, pray for us. But um, but it is a little bit dense, worth your time, but let me give you a brief summary if you don't wanna waste 20 hours of your life. You're welcome to chase it down. But his basic premise is that the West as sociologists have long documented is built around what they call the myth of progress which is this faith and it really is a quasi religious kind of faith that human history is moving toward a utopian or at least a better future you hear it every time somebody says well now we know or it's 2020 or soon we will get to Most ancient and still many Eastern societies and Southern African societies think of history as far more cyclical, like the seasons, whereas the West view of history is far more linear. But Friedman said that when you actually look at the data, just the raw, hard data, and you interpret it with an objective mind, the West is progressing economically and technologically. More people have more money, or at least a better standard of living than ever before. Science, technology, medicine, lifespan, all of this is at an all-time high. But he would argue, the data shows that the West is regressing emotionally and relationally. Any of you who work with Gen Z, or Gen Z, as you would say, um, which are just now coming into leadership in our churches, the oldest of that generation is 2021, 20, so they're no longer in our youth group. Now they're the head of our worship team or they're on staff at our church or they're leading a small group or whatever it is. You know that as wonderful as they are, in many ways they're much better than my millennial generation, but they are marked by a generation-wide epidemic of anxiety, but across, I mean literally mental health on university campus right now is a global Western problem. But across generations, anxiety is way up. A recent Pew survey from last year found that 39% of people, at least in my country, said they were more anxious in 2019 than they were in 2018. The stats on mental health in general are through the roof. You don't hear a lot about it in the news, but scientists are using the language of epidemic for things not just like anxiety and depression, but bipolar, schizophrenia, personality disorders, not to mention the relational milieu, the breakdown of the family, widespread divorce insecure attachment, all of these things. It can feel, in particular now, with gender and sexuality itself all up in the air and the absence of meaning and purpose in a secular worldview. It feels a little bit, at least in my country, like the West is coming off the rails. And Friedman identified a five-step, self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety by which the West is regressing in a kind of downward emotional and relational spiral. Now, to be fair, he did not quite frame it this way as a self-perpetuating cycle. This is my slide, not his. He framed it more as five aspects of an anxious culture, but I do think there is a forward inertia to it. The first is reactivity. The vicious cycle is kicked off by a culture of reactivity where people constantly react to the external events of life with internal anxiety, anger, fear, outrage, and the rest. The 24-7 digital news cycle thrives off of this reactivity because it generates hits, which in turn drive up advertising revenue. So they make money off of our anxiety and our addiction to our phones. Often, the outrage is couched as a kind of social justice, and even when it's a legitimate issue, it is often in reality just a way to make money and garner followers. Think of how many news stories, even from prestigious journalists at the New York Times or whatever your publication of choice is, write entire stories just based on a series of tweets from that morning or an offhand comment from a celebrity or a politician just feeding the outrage monster to make money off of you. Second is a herding instinct that is kind of the byproduct of this. For all of the talk about how individualistic we are in the West, we can't change the nature of what it means to be human. Secular psychologists call us social animals. And while I I reject the categorization of human beings as animals, We have to admit that something is wired into our brain and into our body, this kind of herd mentality. So as our culture is sucked into reactivity, we follow the crowd and we just devolve into this mob mentality of yes, what the right says or the left says or the church says or this says. This then creates a culture of blame displacement, number three, quote, instead of examining and searching out the underlying causes creating toxicity, we focus on the symptoms. Viewing them in isolation instead of seeing them as a part of a system whole. Rather than taking a proactive approach that examines our ability to affect change in areas over which we have a responsibility, we retreat into a perpetual victim status, blaming others and external forces. As blame is thrown around, and I'm sure you deal with this all the time, a cultural paralysis sets in, a suffocating fear of offending, which you've you've made that an art form in England, well done creates a gridlock, there's the laughter, thank you, that creates a gridlock which prevents renewal. This in turn creates, number four, a quick fix mentality, the kind of instant gratification of Western culture and everything from text messaging to social media to, do you have Amazon here? Yes, you do, okay, got it. Everywhere but China, all right. Um, like All of this, it, it makes us used to getting what we want right when we want it. This in turn creates a low threshold of pain, which keeps us from what the writers of the Bible call perseverance, So that word we read last night, endurance that is inspired by hope. And it makes us look for the silver bullet, just quick, simple, easy solutions for long-term, complex, very difficult problems. This is true of millennials, and it's even more true of Gen Z. There's a lot of great things, again, about that emerging generation, but the level of emotional resilience is at the lowest point it's been in generations. Finally, this creates, number five, a lack of well-differentiated leadership. Now, that's psychological speak, well-differentiated. All that means is a leader or a person with a clear differentiation, a clear boundary between this is me and that is you. Meaning, you know, your brain has all, you know, they say 30% of our neurons are mere neurons, which means when you look at somebody and they smile at you, what do you do? Smile. Well, maybe if you're a Christian Brit. Not if you're just a regular Brit. But if you're a Christian Brit, you smile. I just, I have so much fun teasing you because you oppressed us for so many years, and what can I say? I just, a couple hundred years of animosity in my genetic code, you know? I'm kidding. I'm a pacifist and think the whole thing was ungodly, but true story. But you know, when you look at somebody and they smile at you, you smile. When somebody walks into the room and they're they're angry, you you feel this anger or the agitation. When somebody is really stressed out and anxious around you, You feel stressed out and anxious. This is actually how God wired you, it's beautiful. We're created in the image of a relational Trinitarian God. We are relational at our core. We can't help but relate to other people. But this is a a real challenge when you're not a well differentiated leader. When there's somebody or a community in front of you that's full of anxiety or outrage or anger or blame shifting, it's hard to not just get sucked into that. It's hard to have a clear line of this person is angry, this person is anxious, this person is upset, I'm okay that doesn't have to like, permeate the membrane of my spirit. I can sit here and be well differentiated and calm and compassionate and loving. So this creates like leaders who, 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 who are not the types of leaders who can break the cycle of anxiety because you just can't lead well in an environment of reactivity, anger, blame shifting, and low emotional resilience. So as the saying goes, we get the leaders we deserve often those who prey on the cycle of anxiety to get what they want. Now, Friedman said, all that to say this, Friedman said the only way to stop this cycle is to inject into the middle of it what he called a non-anxious presence. By a non-anxious presence, he meant a well-differentiated leader, somebody who was calm, calm, was at peace with God and with himself or herself, that is you, this is me, I'm here, I'm present in compassion and in love, but I'm not sucked into all of the anxiety and the outrage and the blame shifting, I'm here to offer a calm, wise, non-anxious presence. And he said, that's the only way to break this cycle, be it in a family or a small group or a church or a nation state. A quarter of a century later, his paradigm is more perceptive than ever, particular in the political and the moral turmoil of our era. Portland, where I live, is home to the largest independent bookstore in America. It's called Powell's Books. And there's, you know, like most large bookstores, there's recommended reading walls. And there's this one huge wall right when you walk in that my buddy Mark Sayers and I just call the freaking out wall. And it's just all of the books on all of the things. Climate change and President Trump and Brexit and President Trump and climate change and sexuality and President Trump and just (laughs) all of the things are on the wall. There's just so much anxiety and fear and outrage and anger. Our world is in desperate need of followers of Jesus and others to step in as a non-anxious presence and break the vicious cycle. Now, the trick is, easier said than done, right. It's not like, oh, cool, yeah, I'll just be a non-anxious presence from now on. (laughs) It's a little bit harder than that. How do we become a non-anxious presence, in particular in a culture that is spinning out of control and anxiety? Well, that's where Friedman's book is fine, but it's a lot less helpful. But in the story that we're about to read in Matthew 14, Jesus and his biographer, Matthew, offer us, I think, a way forward, at least a glimpse of a way forward to becoming the kind of person or apprentice of Jesus and for many of us in the room, if not all, a leader who is free of fear and a non-anxious presence for the world. Matthew 14, would you please stand with me for the reading of scripture? Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Let's just take a few moments to read the story. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up by himself on a mountainside to pray. It's interesting. This is Jesus who earlier in Matthew's gospel said, when you pray, pray. Go somewhere alone. Go to what he called the secret place and just rest in your father's love. He's doing exactly what he taught his disciples to do. Um, later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. You ever feel that way? It's also known as church planting. Shortly before dawn, and a more literal translation is in the fourth watch of the night. The Romans divided the night into four, three hour watches. So this would have been between 3 a.m. and dawn, meaning the disciples have been at it on the lake for nine hours. You think you slept bad last night? Nine hours all night long. Can you imagine how tired they must be? When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost and they cried out in fear. One translation has they screamed in terror. I mean, not only are they dead, tired, and exhausted, but you know, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is a, a Bedouin culture. It's not a, they're not island people. It's not a seafaring culture. And so they are scared to death of water in general. In all Hebrew mythology, water is the home of anarchy and chaos and evil and Leviathan. In particular, that Greek word that we translate ghost is phantasma, where we get the word phantom. And there was a common legend or perception in the first century that the souls of those who died in the lake would hump the lake at night. So can you imagine? Like there's a dude walking to you across the lake. You're delirious with sleep. You have a category for a ghost or whatever. I mean, they are, they are scared to death the anxiety. But, 27, Jesus immediately said to them, I love it, the word of Jesus for so many, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Ah, that word it is I in Greek is ego and me. Which, if you're a Bible nerd, you might recognize that. It's literally I am, and it's the same word used in the book of Exodus in the name of God. When God says, I am that I am, when that was translated into the Greek in the Septuagint, the translation that most likely Matthew and Jesus would have read, the word there, the Greek there was ego, a me, to make things even more Bible nerd level, this phrase is exactly in the middle of the story. There are, depending on who you read, either exactly or one or two words off, 90 words on either side of the phrase Ego me." Matthew is saying this is the center point of the story. This person coming to you that you're scared to death of is not a ghost, it's not, you don't, need it. this is actually I am who I am, coming to you over the water. Lord, hence the name, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He was scared, he was anxious. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Love the honesty of that. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, or in Greek, that's actually like a loving little nickname. It's you little faith. There's no of, there's no preposition in the Greek. You little faith. And you could read that as Jesus, you know, like a a dig, like you little faith. I think it's more like how a loving father would speak to a child. Oh, you little faith, right? Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Take a seat. Now, you all know this story very well, and for good reason. This story has, over the years, hit a nerve in the human psyche to the point that a storm has become a stock image or metaphor inside and outside of the church, at least all over the West, for a hard time of life. Now, there are so many layers to this story, I don't have time to explore really any of them. I just want to offer one very simple insight from this story that most of you know very well that I missed until just about a year ago in, and we're teaching through Matthew back home. And it, it re, like there's a whole new dimension to the story for me. And it's very simple. This is the second storm story in Matthew's gospel. If you're reading through Matthew from beginning to end, particularly the way it was designed for you to read through the whole thing in one sitting, this story feels a lot like deja vu. Wait a minute, did not we just read that story? Yes, it was back in chapter eight, and the two stories are very similar, but there's a subtle kind of little different part to each one, similar in that they're both stories about storms, they're both on the Sea of Galilee, they're both at night, the disciples are scared to death in each one, Jesus calls them little faith in each one, but they are different in that in the first storm, Jesus is in the boat, but he's asleep, you remember that one? I want to master that art, Jesus, let me apprentice under you. He's in the boat and he's asleep. In the second one, he's out of the boat and he's nowhere to be found. He's way up on a mountain in the dark, away. And in the first storm, Jesus asks them a question, why are you so afraid? In the second one, he gives them a command, do not fear. Now, one way of reading this, is that the biographer Matthew is saying that we can't just wake up one morning and decide to become a non-anxious presence. We can't just wake up one morning and say, all right, you know what I should really stop doing? Being nervous. I'm just done. Let's not do that anymore. Instead, we have to, that's why Jesus doesn't command it early on. Instead, we have to become the kind of people through our apprenticeship to Jesus who are free of fear and are a non-anxious presence to the world. So I've been asking the question recently, how? Like how, how? How do we cooperate with Jesus in our apprenticeship to him to that end to become a non-anxious presence? And I don't think there is a formulaic answer to that, but I've been playing around with a countercycle that I just wanna run by you this morning to Friedman's five, if you have that in your mind, at Friedman's five, a reactivity, hurting, blame, displacement, and so on. Here's a counter cycle from the life and teachings of Jesus. Now just to clarify, this is not an attempt to exegete Matthew chapter 14, and it is not an attempt to simplify and synthesize the way of Jesus into one thing. This is just five practices from the life of teachings of Jesus as they come to us from Matthew and the four gospels that I read as a kind of counter habit to the vicious cycle of anxiety and that I think are practices that have the potential to open us up to the spirit of Jesus to form us into a non-anxious presence for the world. First off is slowing, or what Pete Scazzaro calls a slow-down spirituality. Ah, how good is that? A slow-down spirituality. You know, um, I won't say much about this because of the seminar yesterday, but one of the first things that you read, that you realize when you read the gospels is that Jesus was rarely, if ever, in a hurry. Dallas Willard was once asked to describe Jesus in one word and he thought about it for a moment and he said, "Relaxed," which is really interesting. You know, Willard was in a vineyard church for the last 20 years of his life and people don't think of him as a charismatic because he writes in the language of a philosopher, not in the language of kind of the subculture. But he is 100% there at a theological level. and his book on hearing the voice of God, which is still the best thing I've ever read on hearing the voice of God, he writes, Jesus will walk up to you and talk to you. That's about as vineyard as it comes. Or really, that's about as biblical as it comes. And Willard saw that Jesus' pace of life was often very different and much slower than our Oh, just think about how many stories in the four Gospels are interruptions and how Jesus responds, not just stories, but teachings, how Jesus responds to the interruption. C.S. Lewis once said, something to the effect of how you respond to an interruption is who you really are, which is just death to the soul, right? Like, oh, if, if you were happy, you're not anymore now, right? That's just, ah, oh, so true. But there was something about Jesus' manner, his person, his way, his soul that was just, there was enough space in his life, and there was a pace by which he would move through the world, even though he was very generative and very active, where he was just open to interruptions, whereas often we are not. And it was all in the name of love. It's a Japanese theologian who has this beautiful little collection of essays called Three Mile an Hour God, three miles per hour is the speed of walking. And he just writes about how God walks slowly because God is love. And if we are going to walk through this world, through our city, through our church, and offer love and a non-anxious presence, we have to slow down our pace of life. Secondly is Sabbath rest. You know, one of the main things you see in Jesus' lifestyle is this rhythm of retreat and return. Retreat and return. Retreat in return. Jesus was just always there was this oscillation, this kind of back and forth between time alone and the quiet and prayer and rest with God, with his soul, and then time with friends, activity, preaching, healing, doing all of the stuff, as you would say. And there was this balance and this tension and this back and forth that. Really, one of the great challenges, I think, of following Jesus in the modern era is is getting that balance right, and it's a moving target, right, based on your personality and your stage of life and God's call on you, but living in that balance, that retreat and return. I love Luke's summary, quote, Jesus is Luke five, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Can that be said of you? Sam often withdrew to lonely places. Well, let's put it in the present so you're not dead. You often withdraw to ple- lonely places and pray. Sarah often withdraws to lonely places and pray. John Mark often withdraws to lonely places and prayed. In fact, I would argue, and a number of scholars make this case that the more in demand Jesus was, the more he snuck away, to pray and rest and gather his soul and get direction from God. I just read um, uh, an autobiography from Elton Trueblood. You may not know who he is. He was a Quaker philosopher from a century ago, and I'm interested in Quakers right now. And he had this great line about how the more public a leader is, the more he or she has to learn to hide. And he based it all on the life of Jesus. And that there's something to that where the, the more that you lead, the more responsibility you have, the more influence, the more people you, you serve in your church, we, we tend to go the opposite direction. We think, I need to be around more. I need to be more present. I need to be more available. I need to do more things. But, but what if that's actually a strategy of the enemy against us? What if actually, man, you have to do less in order to do more? What if actually that means, no, we need, we need more time in prayer to live in reliance on God? I'm really not a sports guy, but I've been, I'm interested in the psychology of sports a little bit, and I've been following this, there's this in my country at least, there's this massive controversy and debate over what's called load management, It's an old idea in baseball where it's less controversial. It's a new idea in basketball. And as I understand it, the basic idea is that the more important a player is to the team, the less they're able to play and the more they have to rest. But it's a controversy because if you show up for a basketball game, it's quite expensive to go to a game, at least in my country. You pay however much money to get in, and then the star player is just like sitting on the bench just caring for his soul, (laughs) you know? You're like, I don't want you to care for your soul, I wanna Instagram you, get on the, win the game for me. Get out there, you know? But the basic idea is that the more key a player is to the team, the more the mental and emotional and relational and physiological stress is put on the person's soul, and so actually, they need to actually play less and rest more. I think there is a principle in there, I think there's a human wisdom thing in there, for the way that we lead, where the more leadership we have, the more time we need to spend in rest, life-giving, renewal, whatever that looks like for you based on your personality, and of course, prayer. I recently read Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald, who was a pastor for decades. My favorite line in the entire book was this, Jesus knew his limits well. Strange as it may seem, he knew what we conveniently forget, and this is the killer line, Time must be properly budgeted for the gathering of inner strength and resolve in order to compensate for one's weaknesses when spiritual warfare begins. How well we rest will determine how well we work, and I would argue it will determine how victorious we are against the enemy. It's been said that rest is a weapon in spiritual warfare. It really is. I really think that Sabbath and sleep and rest and prayer are a form of spiritual warfare against the enemy and against our own flesh. It is very hard to tempt well-rested, emotionally healthy, happy people. It's very easy to tempt exhausted, burned out workaholic people under chronic stress. How often do we do most of the enemy's work for him? May I just encourage you, may I give you permission, may I bless you with the spirit and a practice of Sabbath rest. Third is koinonia. As many of you, you may or may not recognize that word. It's the Greek word used all through the book of Acts in the New Testament for, it's translated, um, partnership or sharing or community or fellowship. It's the word used for a kind of relational bond that is a combination of one, partnership and work. It was originally a business term. And two, deep soul kind of friendship, kindred spirit. Jesus had this with the three, Peter, James, and John. He said to them, I have called you friends. It comes as no surprise that this model of relationship became the gold standard in the early church. And I think that more now than ever, especially always, but especially for those of us in the kind of post-Christian apocalypse that we live in, we have a deep need for koinonia. That's one of the reasons that a gathering like this is such a gift. How many of you are just loving time with your friends? And I walked into the hotel last night at like 11.30 at night, and everybody's like, are you coming to drinks? And I'm like... No, it's almost midnight. I'm not coming to drinks, you know? But well, it's packed downstairs. And just, I'm, my guess is it's just people who want to be together and have relationship and have that bond and that, ah, oh, I miss you and how are you? And to share soul and, oh, that's what it's like for you. This is what it's like for me. This is such a gift. And you don't need a 100 people like this. You just have a few. I have about a dozen guys that um, I spend a week with every spring, all lead pastors of churches, and we just, we go to this house, we sit together, and we spend a week together, and they are my dearest friend. One of them lives here in Nottingham, and yesterday afternoon on the break, or day before, I spent just the whole afternoon with them, and it's just, you know those friends where you don't see each other for nine months and then you sit together and like literally five minutes in the conversation, one of us is weeping and we're just like at all the soul. It was, that's not an exaggeration. We're just at all the soul stuff, right? The gift of deep, of koinonia, men and women that we're deep friends with and we're in partnership with for the work of the kingdom of God. Deep, long-term, honest friendships like what you see in John and Debbie and Ellie and John. That, that's the stuff of the kingdom of God. That is what will get you flourishing and thriving as they are decades into the work, calm and present before God. But fourth is contemplative prayer. Now, um, I hesitate to use that word because it, it has people have mixed reaction to the idea of contemplative prayer, particularly in the charismatic church. I love it, all of us introverts are like, yes, sign me up. Um, But in particular, often extroverts or people that really care about mission or evangelism or justice or church planting are often a little allergic to the idea. You have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus, we read, often, again, went off into the quiet to be alone and pray. Now, it just says to pray. It doesn't say what kind of prayer it was. I come from a church tradition where prayer is synonymous with intercession with asking god for things which is for sure a core facet of prayer but when jesus you know has this beautiful teaching in john 15 about abide in me or remain in me i I don't know what he means by that but i doubt he means intercession i think he means a kind of resting in the father's love through connection in the spirit There is a kind of prayer that feels like work and it's good and there's a right and fitting place for it. But often when you're already tired and on the edge of burnout, you're like, I need to pray more, which feels like I need to work more. And again, there's a time and a place for that. But there's also a time and a place for a kind of resting in prayer. I love Ronald Rollheiser's definition of prayer as relaxing into God's goodness. Is that how you think about prayer? I'm just relaxing into God's goodness. The Catholics, and here's why I say that. The Catholic mystics all point out that the opposite of contemplation is not action, it's reaction. (laughs) Meaning, so much leadership is reactive, not contemplative meaning you just react to stimulus, to outrage, to people that are upset, to the tyranny of the urgent, to the recent email, to the person who wants to meet with you, to church trends, to this fad, to this theological idea, and it's just reactive. You react, 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 react. Contemplative leadership or what you see in the life of Jesus is not reactive. There's a thoughtfulness, there's a poise, there's a wisdom. I think of the classic story in Mark chapter one where Jesus is up early and off to the wilderness to pray in the quiet, and then he comes out He doesn't just say, oh, I feel so relaxed now. No, he actually says no to a demand and an incredible opportunity, and then he says, no, for this reason we must go forth to preach the gospel in other towns and villages. He has this sense of clarity, this sense of direction, this sense of inner poise, this sense of, nope, not that, this, that's contemplative leadership, that blend, again, that back and forth between retreat and return, between contemplation when you're resting in God and hearing his voice and getting a sense of his direction in your inner heart, and then you step back out into the world in action and in activity and in the stuff. It's this both and. We talk a lot back home at the church I'm a part of in Portland about how our church is a blend of two traditions, the contemplative and the charismatic, which at first present very different. Like When you think about the contemplative tradition, You think about kind of the daily discipline, it's very high J on the Myers-Briggs, I love it. And then you think about the charismatic, and it's more about the encounter, right? It's more about the moment, it's more spontaneous, and somebody literally, I'm not going to say that, never mind, but um, (laughs) edit, edit, edit. But it's more just off the cuff, it's more, you could argue it's more prophetic, or you could argue it's less well-planned. Maybe that's the same thing, I don't know. <laughs> that's not a slam, I promise. Um, but it, but it is, and again, both of those matter. When we think about the contemplative, it's you tend to think it's more in the quiet, it's more alone, it's more introverted, whereas the charismatic is more extroverted, it's more about singing in crowds and the energy in the room, and the, the moment. It's, the contemplative is more individualistic at times, whereas the charismatic is often more communal. How do we plant the church? How do we change the world? The contemplative is often more intellectual, it's more cerebral, whereas the the charismatic is often more emotional. I love how in touch you are with your inner, with your body and with your feeling. It's God's done a deep work in me through you the last few days. The contemplative is more about coming to peace and the charismatic is more about rising up in passion. But if you think about it, as different as they present, they are actually both built off, they are the most common, the most similar two traditions I think in all of the church. They're both built off a theology of manifest presence. They're both built off of, I want to experience God. I don't wanna just hear about God, I don't wanna just read about God, I don't wanna just believe in God, I want to experience the presence with a capital P. And there is a blend that we have to fight for. All of you, as individuals, and then each of us in the tribe or the movement that we're a part of, will lean toward one side or the other just based on your personality. If you're more introverted, if you're more of a on Myers-Briggs, if you're more cerebral, you're just gonna naturally gravitate to one end. And if you're more of a pragmatic, more of a feeler, more of an extrovert, more of an out in the world, you're going to gravitate toward the other. That's not bad. Personalities and preferences are part of God's call on your life and the flow of the spirit, the Trinitarian community through you and the expression of God through you. It's beautiful. But one, we really do need to blend. To move toward maturity is to move toward a healthy balance and a, a wider experience of the kingdom of God in our own body and in the body of the church. And and we need to be very careful not to react against what does not come easy for us based on our personality and preferences. That's just not how I like to do it. Or based on a bad experience in the past or a wound or based on fear, much of it is based on fear. My point is, the contemplative and the charismatic must come together as people in the way of Jesus live in this this back and forth of prayer, contemplation, resting in God, hearing his voice in our direction, and then back out into the world to do this stuff. Finally, I think the fifth kind of counter habit is this idea of indifference. By indifference, I'm referring, that's a weird word in English, so let me explain it, I'm referring to the word as it's used by Ignatius of Loyola, who's been, something has been said about him the last few days by Debbie and others, and the Jesuit order as a whole. Many Ignatian scholars argue that a much better English translation, he he wrote in Spanish, not English, they argue is the word freedom. I don't like the word indifference because it makes us sound like we don't care. That was not remotely his idea. Freedom is a great way to say it. What he meant by indifference or freedom was that you are free at an emotional level from the need for your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace. The French mystics called this detachment, but we can't talk about the French here, so moving on. (laughs) Modern Christian psychologists call it yieldedness. And it's just this very simple idea that come what may, good or bad, we're okay. Not stoic, not emotionally repressed, not in denial. No, we feel, we let the emotions come through us. But our, our sense of joy, our sense of peace, our sense of life is not dependent on, my life has to go this way. I think that's what Jesus is saying with do not fear. He's not saying, don't worry, nothing bad will ever happen to you. If you think that's what he means, keep reading the story. What happens to Jesus? He goes to the cross and dies. And Paul makes it clear, he dies not just for us, but also with us, both and. I think what Jesus is saying is no matter what happens, even death itself, you don't need to fear. I was just so struck by Jesus' line in Revelation chapter one, I hold the keys to death and Hades, do not be afraid. What do people fear more than death and hell? Very public speaking, but other than that, <laughs> very little, right? If we don't need to fear death or hell itself, we don't need to fear anything. We can live without fear with Jesus in the kingdom. You now there are two very basic ways of dealing with anxiety. One is fixing all of your problems so you no longer have anything to worry about. <laughs> have fun with that one. <laughs> You know, you all know, like, all I have to do is say it for you to chuckle. That's just a chasing after the wind. Life then becomes an endless game of whack-a-mole, right? You fix one problem, another one, another one, another one, another one. Like, you answer this, you get this person calmed down at church, and then you get another mean email, and it's just like, boom, 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 boom. It's just a fool's errand. Eventually, we realize that even if we can get them all to stay down for a minute, the deepest problems of life often cannot be solved in our own heart. The other way is just coming to a place where you're you're okay with your problems. That doesn't mean you roll over and play dead. It doesn't mean you're passive. It doesn't mean you're stoic or non-emotional. It means you do everything you can to fix your problems, make things okay, to plan for your future, and then what comes, comes. You don't need to fear or rage or manipulate or freak out. It's okay the very beginning of his Spiritual Exercises, which is the kind of collection of writings and it's really more, it's Exercises, for which Ignatius is famous. He writes this, and this is a great summary. We should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Isn't that beautiful? Here's here's the one thing I need to be true in my life. I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. Notice how he ties this idea of indifference or freedom to love. As I said last night, when, with fear-based leadership, when we, scramble to con- we, we then scramble to control our life, and when we do that, we negate love because we manipulate people, we bully people, we use people, we run over people to get what we want and we think we need. This is toxic and so dangerous because if you do this as a leader, you have power over people and you wound people everywhere you go. My mentor and I were recently chatting about this, and he had this great one-off line. He said, you know, when fear is running the show, love is repressed. In context, we were chatting about um, my parenting. And as my, chil- my children are wonderful, but as my eldest is now full-on into the Stranger Things teenage years of 14, there's more f- I have more fear, right? More anxiety as a parent. And, You know, if you have a teenager, you know they—they're not clay in your hands, right? You're not the sculptor, right? They are a free, autonomous being, made in the image of God and fallen. And um, (laughs) and it's—and he's—I mean, he's so lovely. I love him, but man, like it's really hard with my personality for me to not parent to parent out of faith and not out of fear. And he's a great kid, but man, when I let fear take over my reaction to an offhand comment or a behavior or a thing, I immediately, I step in and I, I clamp down on him and I, and I parent with anxiety. And trust me, it does not go well. As many of you parents know and many of you children know because that was your experience of your mom and your dad. It's very hard not to parent that way. So becoming a non-anxious presence this is what I, you need to hear. It's not just about, I wanna feel less stressed out and more relaxed, you know? It's not even the point. That's a means, I mean, sure, and I do think Jesus wants you to come to a place of peace, but it's about really becoming people of love and prophetic and pastoral leadership. This, to me, really seems to be the great spiritual task to the second half of life, as I'm nearing 40 in a few months, and many of you are are in that world. Feels like it's moving from problem-solving, which is there's a right and fitting place for that, in particular when you're younger, to really accepting that most of my deepest problems cannot be solved, and that's okay. It's just fine, actually. I'm happy. I'm in the kingdom. I'm with Jesus. Is there sadness? Yes. There's so much more joy. But it's about accepting and just releasing the anger and bitterness and manipulation tactics that all of us are vulnerable to. I just came across a recent psychological survey that estimated the average person in the West has 15% of the control over their life they think they do. (laughs) Just here to bless you and encourage you from the West Coast of America. Oh man, you're like, we're never having this guy back, ever. (laughs) There is such a freedom if you can come to peace with that. Because best case scenario, you rage against it and notch it up to 17%. I know that one from personal experience. Man, there's such a peace that just comes when you come to not only accept reality, but even come to discover and recognize and wake up to the goodness of reality before God. We must realize that everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Now, as we end here, I, you know, I'm, I feel weird with this one because I'm not, uh, by just nature, I'm not a non-anxious presence. Um, I've had a lifelong, adult-long struggle with anxiety and depression in my early 20s in university. I was suicidal, severe mental health issues, on medication. So this has, we all—we none of us start from the same place. And for me, um, I started pretty far behind the pack when it comes to just this sense of kind of peace and calm and presence to my body. And God has done a profound work in me. Um, I mean, goodness, I just feel like a different person. Yet at the same time, I'm still me, and I have a long ways to go. And again, as we said last night, theology of journey, not theology of arrival. And a non-anxious presence, you know, it doesn't mean that we never feel fear. It's that the way God created your body at a neurobiological level, fear is not a bad thing. Like a scientist would say fear is a good thing. Right, fear is a signal from your body. Um, like the, you know, they talk about the five basic of emotions of fear and shame and you know, disgust. These are signals from your body that something in your environment is a threat and you need to be careful. So like, it's like when you feel fear because a bus almost runs you over or whatever, that's your body doing what it's supposed to do. That's not like because you're not mature, right? <laughs> that's, um, that's it. The last thing you want is like, oh, I'm about to die, boom, you know? Like that's not, that's not right. Becoming a non-anxious presence, it doesn't actually mean you never get afraid anymore. It means that you fear God. And that brings peace to everything. And then fear becomes just a signal from your body for you to listen to, negotiate with, and navigate life well by, but no longer a trauma or a tyrant. They save inner healing, which again is something contemplatives and charismatics have in common, that all healing or all inner healing is the removal of fear. Just coming to this place where I'm not scared anymore. I'm okay. And it's not okay, but I'm okay. And the beauty of that, psychologists define fear as the apprehension of future evil. But if we don't have to be scared of death or hell, If we follow Jesus who has gone through hell and come out the other side, and who whatever hell we go through, literal or metaphoric, is with us in all of it, and everything has the potential of calling forth a more loving response to our life forever with God, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to let fear run the show. We don't have to lead out of anxiety and instinct and reactivity and low emotional, we can become, through apprenticeship to Jesus, a non-anxious presence for the world. And so that is, I think, the invitation of Jesus to me, to you. For some of you, this will be much easier. For others like myself, this will be a lifelong journey at which you never arrive, but you move forward. But May God set you free from the vicious cycle of your culture and mine cycle of anxiety as we move into the year ahead. And may God, through the beauty of slowing and of rest, deep relationships and of contemplative prayer and of freedom, may God make you into a non-anxious presence for the city and for the world. Let's stand together.